0: Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Sometimes people are born bad. Or are they? Can evil run in the family like red hair or left-handedness? The Weaver family certainly lends credence to the belief that a son can be born a criminal just like his daddy. And listeners, because many people in this story have the same name, I will refer to Ward Weaver Sr. as Weaver, Ward Weaver Jr. as Junior, and Ward Weaver III as Ward. The saga of the Weavers began when Ward Weaver Sr. was born in Los Angeles County, California. Little is known about his early life and childhood, but he married Dorothy, who went by the nickname Dot, sometime before 1944. Weaver and Dot met at a brothel where Dot worked. The marriage was not a happy one or a stable one. There were no shortage of fights and abuse, both physical and verbal. Dot and Weaver got into verbal altercations often, usually about sex. When Weaver was especially mad, he would bring sex workers back to the house and beat them, making Dot watch. Despite their rocky relationship, they had at least two children. Among them, a son named Ward Jr. in 1944 and a daughter, Katie, in 1945. Weaver was a cruel man. He was accused of sexually assaulting his daughter as well as some of his granddaughters. And while information on him is scarce, Weaver was not a well-loved man. Unfortunately for their children, Dot was just as abusive as her husband. She is described as having a deep hatred of men and anger issues. She threatened to castrate her boys, beat all of her children, ran after them with a butcher knife, hit them with belts, and sometimes bit them until they bled. Some reports say that Dot was a drug user. And even though she had these angry outbursts, she somehow maintained a very close relationship with her eldest son, Ward Jr. Jr. and Dot even shared a bedroom and slept in the same bed until Jr. was a teenager. Described as a mama's boy, Jr. wouldn't do anything without his mother's support or permission. When he later went to prison, his first call was always to his mother. On a completely anecdotal note, Ward Jr.'s upbringing and relationship with his mother bear striking similarities to the upbringing of serial killer Gary Ridgway. Both men had abusive mothers who they were heavily devoted to, so much so that it negatively affected relationships with their wives and girlfriends. Now, back to the case. According to his sister, Junior had a mean streak. When she was six, he intentionally cut off her finger with a hatchet. When she was nine, he tied her to a tree, leaving her there for hours. It was also at this age that he first started sexually assaulting her. One time after raping her, he told her that she was pregnant from the assault. He also locked her in a shed and set it on fire. The fire spread to a nearby forest and caused a local emergency. Junior also had a history of torturing animals, especially cats, and was accused of sex crimes by other relatives. Junior married at age 18, around 1962, to a woman named Patricia, and the couple had three children, two girls, Tammy and Teresa, and a boy named Ward Weaver III, who was born in 1963. Dorothy compelled Junior to continue to live in the house with her instead of with his wife and she interfered in his marriage. This made the couple miserable. By 1967, when Junior was 24, his marriage had fallen apart. Patricia took the children while Junior enlisted in the armed forces. An allied force of more than 8,000 men today tightened its hold on the Batangan Peninsula on South Vietnam's central coast, trapping an undetermined number of North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops in tunnel and bunker systems. He completed a tour of duty in Vietnam in 1968 through 1969. While deployed, his job included transporting prisoners of war, and the violence he witnessed in the conflict only increased his proclivity for crime. According to a family member, Junior's mental health deteriorated once he returned from Vietnam. He sought treatment at the Veterans Hospital for PTSD on at least two occasions in the 1970s. His mental health problems aside, he remarried and had several more children in the late 60s and early 70s, including a son named Rodney in 1970. He saw his children from his first marriage very infrequently, and to support his growing family, he took a job as a long-haul trucker. In 1976, Junior was aimlessly driving around Yreka, California, when he noticed a woman leaving her night shift job as a waitress. He rolled down the window and struck up a conversation with her, asking her if she wanted to get a drink or have a cup of coffee. She agreed to meet him at a nearby Denny's restaurant. Once there, Junior and the woman, whose name was Bonnie Brown, decided to go to a local truck stop so Ward could show the woman his big rig. In separate cars, they drove to the truck stop, but when Bonnie's back was turned, Junior struck her with a baseball bat, told her not to scream, and put her into his semi. Fortunately, Bonnie was able to escape the truck while Jr. was walking around the driver's side. She screamed and fled across the parking lot into the truck stop. She later identified her attacker as Ward Weaver Jr. In response, Jr. fled the state and took his family to Idaho, but later turned himself into authorities. He was sentenced to 18 months in prison for the assault. After his attack on Bonnie Brown and the subsequent sentence, Junior continued to drive trucks for a living. In April of 1981, he was driving with his 10-year-old son Rodney when he decided to pick up two teenagers who were hitchhiking. The teens were 18-year-old David Galbraith and his 15-year-old girlfriend Michelle DeLong. The two were from Burlington, Washington, and had run away after David robbed a sporting goods store. Michelle and David were planning on visiting Michelle's uncle when Junior offered them a ride. He took the teenagers to Michelle's uncle's house, but they soon learned that her relatives were gone and wouldn't be back for two weeks. At this point, Junior said he could take them to his home in Oroville, California, and the couple agreed. They stayed with the Weaver family for a couple of days before Junior's next job had him driving to Ventura, California. David and Michelle tagged along because Junior assured David he could help him find employment in Ventura, Once they arrived, David and Junior unloaded the truck and met with a man named Jerry, who was supposed to help David find a job. Jerry agreed to meet back up with Michelle and Junior in a few hours, and David and Jerry left together, but not before Junior gave Jerry a handgun. Michelle and Junior continued on his route making deliveries. Pulling into an isolated area, Junior raped Michelle at knife point. In the meantime, Jerry drove David out of town before stopping the truck to show his passengers some deer on the roadside. When David got out of the truck, Jerry shot him three times in the head then kicked his body down an embankment and drove away. Jerry called Junior, who panicked and dropped Michelle off on the side of the road. He told her he'd be back to pick her up in four hours, which was 9 p.m. Michelle was in such a state of shock after the assault that she stayed on the side of the road until 9 o'clock. At that point, she realized Junior was not coming back, and she went to find help. Amazingly, David, even though he'd been shot in the head three times, was not dead. One bullet went in his cheek and out the other. The other two bullets were lodged in his skull. He managed to crawl up the embankment, walk down the road, and find help where he located a forest ranger and was rescued. Both Junior and Jerry were arrested for attempted murder and a litany of other charges. They were both sentenced to over 40 years in prison. While in jail at San Quentin in 1984... Junior and his cellmate, Ricky Gibson, were talking about past crimes and military service when Junior admitted he'd once killed an airman and his girlfriend. Ricky told prison officials about this admission and authorities began looking into unsolved cases involving airmen. They found a crime that bore a striking resemblance to the assault on David and Michelle, except this time, the boyfriend was an Air Force recruit instead of a runaway teenager. Two months before the attack on David and Michelle, Jr. had committed an eerily similar crime. Robert Radford was an 18-year-old Air Force recruit completing his training in Colorado. While in Colorado, he met 23-year-old Barbara Lavoy, and the two fell in love. Robert and Barbara decided to go on a road trip so Barbara could meet the family. Robert told friends he was planning on marrying Barbara very soon. The pair drove to Edmonds, Washington to visit Robert's parents and then drove south to Pinedale, California to meet his grandmother. From there, the pair planned on going to Las Vegas, where Robert was due to be stationed at nearby Nellis Air Force Base. After visiting with his grandmother in Pinedale on February 5, 1981, the couple left for Nevada around 7 p.m. They planned to drive through the night to reach their destination— Two hours after leaving, the couple's car broke down on the side of Highway 58. Around 10 or 11 that night, a trucker pulled over and offered them a ride, but because the trucker was headed in the opposite direction, the couple declined his offer. An hour later, another trucker stopped and offered the same deal, but this time he was going the right way, and that trucker was Ward Weaver Jr. About five miles down the road, Ward asked Robert to help him with something in the cargo area while robert's back was turned junior beat him with a metal pipe junior later admitted he hit the teenager so many times that he lost count he left robert to bleed out on the concrete and then drove away at this point he pulled a knife on barbara and raped her repeatedly he forced barbara to travel with her head down and her hands behind her back she was conditioned to not move while junior completed his deliveries at one point He stopped at a job site for 45 minutes, and Barbara obediently stayed in the vehicle. He was even pulled over by a state trooper, and Barbara stayed silent. After delivering his cargo in San Francisco, Junior headed toward his home in Oroville. Before he arrived, he instructed Barbara to get out of the car so he could bind her hands and feet. While he attempted to gag her, she bit his thumb. Junior flew into a rage and strangled her. After she died, he buried her on the side of the road. Meanwhile, on the morning of February 6th, only hours after Barbara's kidnapping, a motorist found Robert still alive on the side of the highway and called authorities. Robert died en route to the hospital, but not before law enforcement was able to connect Robert to the abandoned car found five miles away. But what concerned highway patrol was the fact that Robert's car contained the luggage of a woman, and that woman was nowhere to be found. Eventually, they identified Robert Radford, and a person inside the car identified his companion as Barbara Lavoie. Barbara was reported missing, and the case went cold for 17 months. After he murdered Barbara, Junior returned home to his family. He was planning on putting in a sewer line and had been digging holes in the backyard, something his son Rodney helped him with. The family noticed Junior's injured thumb, and he said the injury happened in a bar fight. He told his wife and children that that man might come find him, so he said they needed to stay in the house. That night, Junior retrieved Barbara's body and buried her in his backyard in a trench that 10-year-old Rodney had dug. Several weeks later, Junior exhumed her body again and moved it to a deeper hole. He then built a wooden deck over the hole, telling his wife that he wanted her to have a platform to stand on while she hung laundry on the clothesline. Some reports say that he poured concrete over the hole before building the platform. After concealing Barbara's body, Junior went on about his life as usual. In 1984, with the help of his cellmate, Ricky Gibson, California Highway Patrol were able to link Robert Radford to the jailhouse Confession and asked prison authorities to talk to Junior. At first, Junior was silent. Then he asked to speak to his mother, Dot. Investigators agreed, and after a heart-to-heart with Dot, Ward Weaver Jr. confessed and told the truth. His wife allowed authorities to search the property, and the badly decomposed body of Barbara Lavoie was recovered. Junior even drew a map showing the first location that he had buried Barbara, and investigators found some electrical tape that he'd used to restrain her. He was subsequently charged and convicted, although he later claimed that his confession was coerced, and that detectives threatened that they would pursue charges against his 10-year-old son unless Junior confessed. While Junior detailed his confession, he talked about two voices that lived in his head. One was a female voice named Liddell, he started hearing Liddell's voice when he was 17. She was a good voice who tried to keep him on the straight and narrow. Another voice, this one had no name and it was a man's voice, began speaking to Junior in 68 or 69 when he was in Vietnam. This voice, the male voice, encouraged him to do bad things. But because this voice had saved him in Vietnam, Junior listened to the male voice. Jr. claimed the male voice told him to rape Barbara, but not to kill her. Liddell, on the other hand, encouraged him not to do anything rash. But in the end, the male voice went out. And when Jr. discovered that Barbara was dead, the male voice told him to clean up and hide the evidence. Jr. also admitted that he often used amphetamines to keep himself awake during his long work drives, and at the time of Robert's murder, he had not slept in nearly a week. Over the decades, more than a dozen mental health professionals have assessed Ward Weaver Jr. for a variety of reasons, including to determine if he was competent to stand trial for murder. Some diagnosed him with paranoia, some said schizophrenia, some pointed to antisocial personality disorder, others PTSD, and some brought up a combination of these disorders. A few even believed that he was faking mental illness completely. But experts, for the most part, believe that Ward Weaver Jr. was competent to stand trial and fully understood the differences between right and wrong. It's worth mentioning that Jr. is one of the costliest prisoners in California due to his excessive use of appeals and competency tests. Today, in 2021, he sits on death row in San Quentin. He has used every appeal and trick in the book to have his conviction overturned costing taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars. In the early aughts, his attorneys asked for a reduced sentence for their client, claiming that he could clear up the cases of numerous missing and murdered hitchhikers. But the state declined his offer. They thought his claim was nothing more than another instance of him wasting time and money in a last-ditch attempt to get out of prison. In the years since, several articles claim that 26 missing hitchhikers disappeared along his truck routes. This information is repeated often in literature on the case. However, I can find no additional information on the identities of these possible victims. A few amateur sleuths suggested that perhaps he is the Santa Rosa hitchhiker killer, but there is no hard proof connecting him. With Ward Jr. sitting on death row, we can now look at the story of his son, Ward Weaver III. As mentioned earlier, Ward saw his biological father only a handful of times during his childhood. From age three or maybe four, he was raised by his mother, Patricia, and her husband, Bob Budrow, whom Patricia met only months after her split from junior. Budrow was a heavy drinker. He spent the family's money drowning his sorrows. He was known to beat the children and stay out late, sometimes not coming home at all. Patricia worked as a waitress and a secretary. And money in the family was tight. In nineteen seventy-five, Budrow offered to take Ward on a trip to San Francisco. According to his mother, twelve year old Ward was never the same after that trip. In the years since, Patricia wonders if Budrow abused Ward during this vacation. According to his siblings, there was seldom a time when Ward wasn't hurting animals or people. His younger brother remembered being chained to a tree in the backyard while the neighbor's savage dogs tried to attack him, coming within inches of his face. Ward's sister remembered her brother practicing chokeholds on her and shooting her with a BB gun. In general, the home was full of violence and disruption. In the late 1970s, the family moved to the Portland, Oregon area where Ward finished high school. After high school, he got a job at a burger restaurant before enlisting in the U.S. Navy in February of 1981, In April of 1981, a female relative accused Ward of rape, but because he was slated to ship out of the country in just a few weeks, coupled with the fact that at the time Ward was still technically a juvenile, law enforcement decided not to press charges. Once he completed basic training, he received an assignment on the USS Coral Sea, which was docked in the Philippines. Ward worked as a cook aboard the ship, but he was disliked by his superiors and his co workers. His superiors noted that he was often late, absent, or drunk. Soon he was dishonorably discharged from the Navy in May of 82 because of his absences and drunkenness. But while he was in the Philippines at a local bar, Ward managed to meet a young woman named Maria Stout, who he started a relationship with. It wasn't long before Maria became pregnant, and Maria and Ward moved back to the United States, but their relationship was, well, it was messy. They lived in Ward's mother's basement in Portland. Ward's substance abuse made it hard for him to hold down a job. The couple fought constantly, and Ward, who was only 19 years old, was controlling of Maria, not letting her leave the home alone, and sometimes he was violent with her. In July of 1982, Maria, who was five months pregnant, was admitted to a North Portland hospital with a head injury. She explained that Ward had pulled her hair and banged her head on the edge of their bed during an argument. The police were called and a report was filed. Ward was arrested and later released. Patricia begged Maria to press charges against Ward, but Maria refused and moved back in with her abusive partner. A few months later, the couple welcomed their first child, a boy, Francis, and the family of three relocated to Bakersfield, California. In 1984, Ward is 21 years old and his biological father, Ward Jr., is on trial for double homicide. During jury selection, Ward began to visit his father in prison to, quote, catch up on lost time, and the two reconnected. In August of 84, Ward and Maria finally legally married and gave birth to a second son, Alex. However, the pair still fought constantly. Ward couldn't hold down a job, and Maria collected welfare for herself and the children. Sometimes the family slept in cars or on friends' couches. Ward continued to drink and use drugs. The family was involved with Child Protective Services, and the children were removed from the home on several occasions before being returned. By the end of '84, Ward Jr. was sentenced to death. The lives of Ward and Maria were as miserable as ever. Within two years of his father's death sentence, Ward found himself in more legal trouble. father's day 1986 the weaver children had just been returned from foster care and maria was pregnant for the third time the family was living with another filipino family named the ordonias the ordonias ran a shop that sold filipino goods they also sold their wares at local farmer's markets now this family had teenage children of their own including two daughters ward initially charmed the family and tried to help them around the home but he struggled to find permanent work In June of 86, Ward went out drinking. He had six beers, six vodka screwdrivers, smoked some weed, and ingested some powdered meth. Drunk and disoriented from drug use, Ward found himself stranded outside the bar without a ride home. 16-year-old Jennifer Ordonia and her 15-year-old sister, Jocelyn, found him while they were leaving a nearby bowling alley. They offered him a ride home, and on the way, in the vehicle ward asked to stop for a bathroom break he left the car but instead of doing his business he picked up a large slab of concrete and began to beat jennifer over the head in a completely unprovoked rage she screamed ward what are you doing it's me it's jennifer she would later report that ward flipped a switch during the attack and became a person she had never seen before ward was arrested charged with assault and sentenced to three years in prison at a facility only 40 miles away from where his father was serving. He told his probation officer that he had an explosive temper that he had no control over and he had a fear of ending up like his birth father. In 1988, Ward was released from prison. Maria, she'd stayed loyal to her husband. And in 1989, the couple gave birth to their final child together, a daughter named Mallory. And the cycle of abuse, dysfunction, and unemployment continued. Ward supplemented the family income by selling cocaine and methamphetamines. This was something that Maria did as well. Landlords repeatedly evicted the Weavers for both drug use and the violent altercations between Ward and Maria. The couple would break up, domestic violence calls would be made, fights would be had, and then they'd reconcile over and over again, a vicious cycle. In 1993, Maria decided she'd had enough. She filed for a restraining order against Ward, and the couple separated for good. In July of 1994, Ward, now 31 years old, met his new girlfriend, 18-year-old Christy Sloan. Christy had just graduated from high school, and the two met on a blind date. Listeners, I know there's a lot to unpack there, that she just finished high school and someone set them up on a blind date, but Yeah. Christy found Ward charming, just as many acquaintances of Ward did. But less than two months later, Sloan had become the object of his rage, and he beat her with a cast-iron skillet while she was lying in bed. He was immediately arrested, but Sloan later told prosecutors she feared Ward too much to testify against him, and charges were dropped. Eventually, Ward and Maria officially divorced, and Ward married Christy Sloan in 1996. Ward's four children moved in shortly thereafter. And by 1997, Ward had a new girlfriend, someone he'd met at work. This woman moved in with Ward in 1997, and the two had an on-again, off-again relationship for about five years until 2002. Sometime between 97 and 2002, Christy Sloan and Ward divorced, and while Christy was reportedly heartbroken by his infidelity, she and Ward remained friends and talked often. In 1999, the family briefly moved to, or had an extended visit in, Shoshone, Idaho, where they connected for the first time with Ward's half-brother, Rodney. However, the time in Idaho was brief, and the family returned to Oregon. By 2001, Ward, his children, and his new girlfriend lived in a rental home in Oregon City, Oregon. Ward's youngest, Mallory, was 11 years old. His oldest, Francis, was in his early 20s. It was here in oregon city that mallory became friends with two local girls from gardner middle school ashley pond and miranda gaddis the trio had met briefly in elementary school but ashley and mallory especially had become inseparable by seventh grade miranda who was on the dance team with ashley was close friends with them as well Many of Mallory's classmates liked coming to the Weaver home because Ward always let kids sleep over, he rented fun movies, and bought treats like popsicles for every get-together. Now, Ashley and Miranda both lived in the Newell Creek Village Apartments, a 125-unit apartment building down a hill from the Weaver's rented home. The complex is second-chance friendly, meaning many of the residents were felons or those who had been recently evicted from other tenements. Other residents were mostly low, middle-income families and individuals. Ashley Pond, she had an upbringing that was not ideal. Born in 1989 to her teenaged mother, Lori Pond, and Lori's husband, David, the pair were high school sweethearts. When Ashley was seven or eight, her parents split, and in the subsequent custody battle, a DNA test determined that Lori's husband was not Ashley's biological father. Both David and Ashley were stunned by this news, but shortly thereafter, Ashley began to reconnect with her biological father, Wesley Rutger Jr. She sometimes spent the weekend with him, and relatives noticed that Ashley was often moody and brooding after these visits. After a while, she refused to see him anymore and confided in her mother that her birth father was sexually abusing her. In January of 2001, Rutger was charged with 40 different counts of various sex crimes, but the case would not go to trial for months. Unfortunately, life with her mother, Lori Pond, wasn't easy. By 2001, neighbors and relatives reported that police had been called to the residence on numerous occasions due to drunken domestic disputes. I can't tell if these disputes were between Ashley and Lori or among Lori and other adults in the home, but either way... Ashley had a chaotic home life. In the spring of 2001, she began spending more and more time with the neighbor family, and eventually, she moved in with them. The neighbors, the ones that she moved in with, were the Weavers. Ward, his children, sometimes his girlfriend, and other family members all resided in the home during the time that Ashley moved in. I'm sad to say that Ashley felt safer at the Weavers' home than she did with her own mother. But before long, there were red flags in the developing relationship between Ward and Ashley. Some acquaintances of the girls believed that Ward was Ashley's father because he often took her to school, took her to appointments, and acted like a parent. But some people saw more than a friendly father figure. Ward claimed he had to do these things for Ashley because Lori didn't own a car. A school employee reported to administration that they saw Ashley kiss Ward on the lips one day before school. The school principal documented the incident, but nothing else was done. Other witnesses reported that Ashley and Ward sometimes shared a bed during sleepovers at the Weaver home. Another witness remembered that Ashley would sit on Ward's lap and seem to act sexually aggressive toward the older man, which made the witness think that Ward had something to hide. One of Ward's girlfriends said she saw Ward and Ashley hold hands and felt like Ward spent more time with Ashley than he did with her. Ashley's aunt explained that if she wanted to see Ashley, she had to go through Ward like he was her father. She found this both controlling and inappropriate. Sometime in the summer of that year, Ashley accompanied the family on a two-week vacation to California. During the trip, Ward visited his father in prison. After the trip, Ashley decided to move home and told her mother that on the trip, Ward had molested her. Now, there's some conflicting reports that say Ashley claimed Ward tried to molest her. Lori Pond did make a report to Child Protective Services, but it does not look like a police report was ever filed. Ashley's former teacher, a Mrs. Verdon, was concerned about the relationship between Ward and Ashley, and she reported it to authorities in September of 2001. Ashley had confided in this teacher that Ward threatened her, saying that if she misbehaved, he would testify against her in her father's trial and say she made up the abuse allegations. He also told Ashley that if he testified, her sisters could be removed from her mother's care. Ashley told this teacher that Ward had not ever raped her, but he'd tried. In the past, Mrs. Verdon had made reports of Lori Pond's treatment of Ashley and her sisters for both abuse and neglect, and Verdon did not want to see Ashley suffer more than she already had. Several days after Verdon's report, Rutger decided to plead guilty to one count of unlawful sexual penetration of a child, and he was sentenced to 10 years of probation. Mallory and Ashley had a falling out with the Weaver family concerning Ashley's allegations against Ward. Lori would not let her daughter visit the home any further. The Weavers also banned Ashley from the home, Mallory and her friends decided they should shun Ashley at school, but with Ashley's move back home, she became happier, her grades improved, and her fights with mom became less frequent. For a few months, the relationship between Mallory and Ashley remained difficult, but the pair eventually made up by the winter of 2001, and slowly but surely, Ashley began going back to the Weaver home. Around this time, late December, Ward's girlfriend left him, citing anger that Ashley was back practically living at the Weaver residence. On January 9, 2002, Ashley kissed her mom goodbye and left on the nine-minute walk to the school bus stop. The bus picked up students at 8.19 a.m. on the top of a hill near the apartment complex, but Ashley never made it to the bus. When she didn't come home after school, she was reported missing. Search parties, bloodhounds, and investigators scoured the area. She was not believed to be a runaway, although police considered it a possibility as Ashley fit many criteria of teenage runaways, such as being a victim of abuse, being 12 years old, and having a difficult home life. Within days, the FBI joined the search, because Ashley was most likely kidnapped. One witness reported that in the area of the bus stop that morning, he'd seen a, quote, bushy-haired neighbor in the area. Other reports pointed to Ward Weaver, but there were many other suspects, such as Ashley's father, Wesley Rutger—remember, he's just got probation, so he's out—a few of Lori Pond's ex-boyfriends who didn't get along with Ashley, and a slew of sexual offenders who lived in the area, including many who lived in the same apartment complex. When police canvassed the apartment complex, they figured out that 150 unregistered guests were living there, several were fugitives, and others were registered as sex offenders. Ashley's internet history was searched to see if she'd met someone online, but police came up empty-handed. Two days after the disappearance, Ward was questioned by a detective and the FBI. He explained that Ashley was close to the family, once, but not so much anymore. He let investigators search his home and lawn, but they didn't find anything. There was no evidence of work or digging being done in the yard. On the day of the disappearance, Ward claimed that Mallory took the bus to school and that he was home at the time. He arrived at work at 9.30 that morning, something his co-workers confirmed. It is unknown if Ward left his work at any point during that day. By February, Ashley is still missing, and Miranda, another of Mallory's friends, told kids at school that she thought Ashley had gone with Mallory's dad. Meaning, she thought Ashley went with Ward. But Miranda still attended parties at the Weaver home and was not afraid of him. In mid-February, at a sleepover for Mallory's birthday, Miranda was overheard telling another girl not to stay the night because Ward molested Ashley. Ward and his ex-wife Maria were angry with the comments Miranda made. The news spread like wildfire around the school and community. Public opinion turned against the Weaver family, and at school, it was Mallory instead of Ashley who became ostracized. Then, on March 8th in the late afternoon, Michelle Duffy, Miranda's mother, called to report her daughter missing. Like Ashley, it appeared that Miranda had left for the bus stop, but never made it. And like Ashley, Miranda had a life that wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. In 2002, Miranda was 13 years old. Her parents were divorced after her biological father was jailed for sex crimes against children, although Miranda was not thought to be one of his victims. After the divorce, Michelle began seeing a new man who did abuse Miranda, and he went to jail as well for a term of 75 months. During the investigation, Miranda revealed that she had been molested by two other adults previously. According to Mariah, Miranda's sister, their mother Michelle, was only around sometimes, and added that many neighbor kids were jealous of Mallory because she had a father who was so interested and involved. Despite Miranda's difficult past, Miranda was a good student and involved with the school dance team, the Fallen Angels. She seemed to think that Ward may have been involved in Ashley's case, but didn't believe Ward was dangerous and still visited the Weaver home. On the day of her disappearance, March 8th, Miranda was last seen by her mother around 7.30 in the morning when Mom left for work. Miranda had to leave the house a little bit after 8 to catch the school bus at 8.19. At 1.20, Michelle learned that Miranda had not made it to school, nor had she made it on the bus, and she reported Miranda missing. Once again, neighbors are questioned, dogs are brought out, and Internet's history is searched, and a task force which was started for Ashley was divided in half so that they could look for Miranda. Not surprisingly, the community was gripped with fear. Miranda and Ashley had disappeared only 60 days apart. The girls were friends, both had similar haircuts, heights, and build. Both were white girls with brown eyes, they danced on the same team, they lived at the same apartment complex and both disappeared on their way to the bus. Both girls had a history of sexual abuse from male figures in their lives. They were both neglected by other adults and both were friends with Mallory Weaver. The only person not on edge in Oregon City seemed to be Ward Weaver. On March 7th, the day before Miranda's disappearance, Ward did something unusual. He drove Mallory to Portland to stay the night with her mother, Mallory didn't want to go, but her dad insisted. She spent the night with her mother and skipped a half-day of school the next day. By the afternoon of the 8th, investigators were on Ward's doorstep to question him regarding the disappearance. According to the Portland Tribune, Weaver said Mallory had been home Thursday night and had stayed home sick Friday morning, and he'd stayed home with her. Weaver said Miranda had not come to his house that morning for a ride or to meet up with Mallory. Mallory later told investigators that her father had told her to lie about her whereabouts Thursday night and Friday morning. Financial records later showed that sometime between March 10th and March 12th, Ward purchased dry concrete mix and two shower curtains. On March 15th, Ward consented to a sniffer dog search on his property but asked that the dogs avoid a section of the yard where he had just poured a concrete pad. Seriously? He said the platform was for a hot tub. Dogs appeared to alert in the backyard, and their handlers shared this information with Oregon City Police, but no warrants were issued and no arrests were made. Everyone from community members to Ward's family and friends were shocked by the news of the concrete pad. Had Ward Weaver III poured a concrete slab in his backyard while in the middle of a missing person investigation? Something that so closely mirrored his father's crimes and cover-ups? Ward's ex, Christy Sloan, said she got goosebumps. Maria Shaw, Ward's ex-wife, had her suspicions as early as January, and she claims she saw three large barrels in the yard at that time. Rodney Weaver, Ward's younger brother in Idaho, was speechless. Cadaver dogs searched Ward's usual haunts but found nothing. Still, Mallory is continuing to host parties for her friends, and pre-teens were frequent guests at the Weaver home. The case of the two girls were featured on the TV program America's Most Wanted in March and April of 2002. Ward was thought to be a good suspect by some locals, but he was not the main focus on in the investigation, partially because he had no history of sex crimes or crimes against children. The task force was offering a $50,000 reward for information and sifted through thousands of tips and leads. Listeners, we'll be right back. In June of 2002, the cases are still open and active. Portland Tribune writer Jim Redden stopped by the Weaver home hoping to get a statement from Ward, but was pleasantly surprised when Ward gave him a full-blown interview. During this interview, Ward proudly announced that he was the FBI's prime suspect in the case, although he denied being involved in the disappearances. The story was published on July 2nd, and soon after, a media frenzy erupted. Ward was connected to his father, who was serving life in San Quentin, and local and national media outlets descended on the home of Ward Weaver III. He gave TV and newspaper interviews in his home to programs like Inside Edition and Good Morning America. Ward basked in the notoriety. He scoffed at the incompetence of law enforcement, and in one interview, he called Lori Pond an unfit mother. He followed up the statement by saying he hoped Ashley had run away and found a better life somewhere. According to FBI profilers on the task force, Ward's behavior was akin to other serial killers such as Ted Bundy and Wayne Williams. The outward show of arrogance and seeking out the media, coupled with denial about the crimes he was accused of committing was something the FBI had seen before. Those who knew Ward, they were surprised by his brazen attitude. Behind the scenes, he laughed when authorities followed up leads that didn't involve him, while simultaneously claiming that the FBI ruined his life and targeted him because of who his father was. By August of 2002, the task force was closing in on Ward and he was becoming uneasy. He decided the heat was getting too much and it was time to leave. Around August 8, he rented a storage unit and moved his belongings into it. He told Francis he needed to get away and might move to Mexico or maybe up to Idaho. He also told his son he was planning on sending Mallory to live with his brother, Rodney. On August 13th, Ward Weaver asked Frances' girlfriend, 19-year-old Randy Oneida, to drive him to court so he could deal with his suspended license and then help him with moving. She agreed. When Ward and Randy entered the nearly empty home, Ward assaulted her, ripping her clothes off, pinning her to the ground, and raping her. Remarkably, Randy was able to escape. She fled naked through the backyard and grabbed either a tarp or a shower curtain that was near the concrete pad, before running into the street and stopping a passing motorist who called the police. Shortly thereafter, her boyfriend, Francis, called 911 to report the rape. By early afternoon, Ward was found, arrested, and booked into the county jail on a rape charge. When questioned, Francis said Ward confessed to him that day that he killed the two girls although he later changed his story and said his father had confessed about five days earlier. Alex Weaver also said that his father told him, quote, I've done some bad things. Which Alex thought might be in relation to the disappearance of the girls. These statements, as well as the rape charge, was enough probable cause to get a warrant. Meanwhile, friends and family of the missing girls lined up in the yard of the rental home with signs that said things like, dig it up. Ten days later, on August 23rd, with the search warrant in hand, the body of Miranda Gaddis was located behind the home near a shed in a microwave box. It took a few days and her dental records for a positive match to be made. Two days later, the concrete slab was broken, and the body of Ashley Pond was found in a barrel buried in the backyard. Both girls had been concealed in bags, boxes, or tarps. Ward's fingerprints were found on the tape that was used to tape up the boxes. A cause of death could not be determined for the girls, but both deaths were ruled homicides. Ashley had a blood alcohol level of 0.17, which is the equivalent of drinking about five shots of liquor. The medical examiner said the amount probably rendered her unconscious. Investigative documents showed that Ward often plied teens at his home with alcohol, and in one instance, he'd abused a 15-year-old girl after she was drunk. It is speculated that a similar fate befell Ashley. The medical examiner also determined that the bodies had been stored in a cold place, perhaps a freezer for an expended period before they were buried. At the time of recovery, Ashley had been missing for eight months and Miranda for five. In November of 2002, Mallory was permitted to see her father in jail, and if there was one person in the world who Ward Weaver III cared about, it was Mallory Weaver. She convinced her father to spare her the embarrassment of a trial and plead guilty. After 18 months of legal wrangling and questions about his competence to stand trial, in 2004, Ward Weaver III pled guilty to two counts of murder and was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. He now resides at the Snake River Correctional Facility. Unfortunately, he did not give a confession or provide additional information during his sentencing. In 2007, a prison barber shanked Ward in the neck, but Ward survived the attack, and the man who attacked him was put into the disciplinary section of the jail. Now, Miranda Gaddis, she had a younger sister, Mariah, who was only about nine when her sister disappeared. Well, Mariah needed closure, for the murder of her sister. So in 2009, she began visiting Ward in jail. After about four visits, Ward confessed to the kidnapping and murder of both Ashley Pond and Miranda Gaddis. He said he did not feel remorse for killing Ashley because she deserved it. She had accused him of abuse. But he broke down in tears when speaking about Miranda. He honestly thought when Miranda was walking up the hill to the school bus um, that Miranda had saw something he was in the middle of doing. And uh, he got scared and panicked. So he told her, hey, Ashley's inside. Ashley wants to come home, and Ashley's scared. And so Miranda went over. Ward went on to explain that if Mariah had started to suspect him of anything, he probably would have killed her next. Despite the heartbreaking story shared by Ward, Mariah is glad he finally confessed, and she knows that the right man is rotting in prison. Now, after Ward's arrest, there was some controversy. There was a private investigator who was distantly related to Ashley Pond named Linda O'Neill. And O'Neill was upset because she said she'd tried to convince the Oregon City Police that Ward Weaver III was the perpetrator as early as March of 2002, when the FBI was publicly saying there were no leads. O'Neill further claimed that it was she who discovered the dark past of Ward Weaver Jr. After the arrest, she loudly complained that the police wasted months following other suspects instead of following her suspicions. Ashley's mother, Lori Pond, disagreed. She said she's grateful to the FBI for following up on all the leads and making sure they conducted the investigation by the book. Linda O'Neill wrote a book on the case called Missing the Oregon City Girls, but the victim's families, the FBI, and even casual readers have questioned the veracity of her story and the claims within the book. Additionally, as the book is mostly about Linda O'Neill, not the girls or their murderer, a lot of readers found it strange. Another controversy in the case regards the media's rabid interviews with the prime suspect. In these interviews, Ward basked in the attention from journalists and TV crews. He gloated and scoffed at the girls' families, which was disrespectful to say the least. Ward also gave interviews standing in front of a chest freezer, a freezer in which Miranda's body was likely stored. He let journalists photograph the concrete slab in his backyard. Again, creepy, inappropriate, not okay. They are hassling my family, my friends. They are saying that I am the number one suspect. He told me he flunked two polygraph tests, but also walked me through his home to show he had nothing to hide. Uh, A month later, I learned the truth. He was taunting me here. He'd already buried Ashley under this concrete slab, And he'd used this freezer Um, to store Miranda's body. um, Realities that became evident by the end of the summer, bringing out the vulnerabilities in all of us. In 2014, the story of the two girls from Oregon City had faded from the spotlight. Francis Paul Weaver was 31 years old and living in the Portland area. Francis had some crime in his background, but his sins were relatively minor compared to the crimes of his father and grandfather. In the late 1990s, Francis had lived in Idaho with his uncle. In 1998, he was suspended from the local school district after choking a fellow student. The next year, Francis fired a shotgun into a truck full of teens and injured those inside, including his best friend. He was charged with assault in juvenile court and sentenced to 180 days in juvenile detention. But he was released after just one month. For the entirety of his adult life, he had managed to stay off the radar until 2005, when he was charged with the robbery of a home in Portland, but a grand jury failed to indict him. Then, in 2014, in Canby, Oregon, police came across a car crash. 43 year old Edward Kelly Spangler of Grants Pass, Oregon, was laying on the ground near his crashed SUV. He had two gunshot wounds and had already died. Police followed footprints to a nearby apartment complex where they questioned a man named Michael Oren. Oren confessed to shooting Spangler twice in the head. Francis Weaver, who was at the apartment, was also arrested. Eventually, two more co-conspirators would be arrested, Brittany Endicott and Shannon Betancourt. You see, a day earlier, Francis set up a purchase of a large amount of marijuana from Spangler. Francis and his associates planned to rob Spangler of approximately 15 pounds of marijuana, but the robbery did not go as planned, and Oren ended up shooting Spangler twice in the head. Later, all four were charged with the murder of Edward Spangler as well as robbery in the first degree. In 2016, Francis Weaver was sentenced to life in prison. In a bizarre twist, DNA testing was done during the investigation, which revealed that Francis Weaver was not the biological son of Ward Weaver III and both men were completely stunned by the revelation. The arrest of Francis Weaver brought about a flurry of media activity, with people questioning whether there could be a, quote, killer gene. It goes back to the age-old question of nature versus nurture in a person's life. And while certain types of crimes and behaviors do seem to run in families, such as drug and alcohol addiction, even criminologists who work for the FBI say that three generations of killers is uncommon. Claims that men in the Weaver family were carrying a propensity for violence within their genes were bolstered because Ward Weaver III had committed crimes that closely mirrored his father's transgressions, even though he had not been raised by Ward Jr. In general, claims like this are unsubstantiated. What we do know is that upbringings without good examples, upbringings with violence instead of care, that tends to bring out the worst in children. Ward Weaver III's two siblings, Rodney and Tammy, disregard this presumption. Rodney said, if anything, Ward Weaver Jr.'s crimes kept most of his children on the straight and narrow. The Weaver household has been a hotbed of violence and dysfunction back to the 1940s, when Ward Sr. and Dot first began a relationship, and their crimes of their offspring have fascinated the public for generations. Tragically, The crimes of the Weaver family have all but overshadowed the stories of their victims who get lost in the killer gene discussion. One question where we don't have an answer is, are there any more victims? I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash already gone. Patreon supporters get early ad-free access to each episode plus one bonus episode a month. For only $2.50, it's a great way to show your support of the show. Before we wrap up, I'd like to send congratulations out to Vasi and Zach. I hope it's a wonderful day. I'm Nina Instead. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.